Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. But then he gets up and moves around. Well, that's actually good. That means his brain is saying, if I get up and move around, I'm actually going to be able to process what you're reading to me and the story you're telling me even better. It's going to go even deeper into my brain because the parts of the brain that are becoming active can help filter that information. But if we get mad at him about that and we try to force him to sit, that's a turnoff. So like, you know, a year from now, he ain't going to want to be reading stories with us. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're saying that for some kids, moving around actually helps them listen and process better. Absolutely. listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Hello, hello, Sarah McKenzie here. You've got episode 82 of the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. I told you a while ago that we would have an expert on the show soon to tell us about the importance of movement. That in fact, for many kids, moving while they listen to you read aloud will actually help them listen and focus better. Well, today the day is here. Dr. Michael Gurian from the Gurian Institute is here. He stopped by the Read Aloud Revival podcast to talk to us about that very thing as well as the challenges that the male and female brains present when it comes to reading and listening to books read aloud. We're diving into the science of it today. And I'll tell you what, especially if you're a parent of boys, you want to listen to this whole episode. We now offer full transcripts of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. So if you'd like a transcript of today's show, just head to the show notes to grab that transcript for free. We'll also have links to Dr. Gurian's books and anything else we mentioned during today's program in the show notes as well. You can get those at readaloudrevival.com slash 82. That's readaloudrevival.com slash 82. Dr. Michael Gurian is the New York Times bestselling author of 28 books published in 22 languages, including some you're familiar with, I'm sure. Saving Our Sons, The Wonder of Boys, The Wonder of Girls, Boys and Girls Learn Differently, and What Stories Does My Son Need, among many others. He's a marriage and family counselor and provides keynotes and consulting throughout the world. You may have even heard him speak at one of the great homeschool conventions over the last several years. For more than 30 years, he's researched boys' and girls' brains and their development, and he's joining us today to talk about his work, his books, and particularly how we can use what he knows about the way boys' and girls' brains work to connect our kids with stories. So I am so thrilled to have you here, Dr. Gurian. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's great to be with you, Sarah. Thank you. 
So here at the Read Aloud Revival, we, we're all about books, of course. We're always talking about how to engage our kids with reading. And we're heavy on the read alouds, but we're also always encouraging our kids to be reading and trying to put really good books in their hands and help them cultivate their own reading lives. So I would love to talk with you a little bit about the challenges that come up with both boys and girls based on the way their brains work and the reading life. Can you think of things off the top of your head that are like most common stumbling blocks for boys and girls when it comes to their reading lives? Yeah, I think nowadays the you know, we find the biggest stumbling block is that there's other things, normally screens, that are taking their time. And we're not realizing as families and even as schools, we're not realizing sort of the brain development that's at stake with them being distracted away from reading toward these other things that are not really as good for their brain development. So I'd say now that's the biggest hindrance for kids, you know, just kids, boys and girls in general. Then when we break it down, girls do tend naturally. There's a lot of brain reasons for it. They do tend naturally to, you know, use more words, what we call word production. So they tend to read more than boys do anyway. And then they tend to not be as specific about what they want to read. In other words, they could like reading A, B, or C. Whereas guys have two disadvantages in getting them reading. One is their brains aren't as well set up on average to naturally gravitate toward what we call word production. Their brains produce less words, etc. So that's number one. And then number two, boys can be very specific about what they want to read. For some boys, they need a lot of pictures. This obviously depends on their age. They need more pictures or they need comic books or graphic novels. You know, they, they're more pictorial and some brain reasons for that I can talk about. And then they may prefer nonfiction. They don't male brain. We don't have as many connectors between the parts of the brain that use words and the parts that are doing emotions and senses. And so, you know, giving a boy a, a certain novel, he may just go, nah, just doesn't hit him. But in that same novel may hit a girl. She may love it. Doesn't hit him. So what he we may need to do is target his reading on what his areas of interest are. You know, could be horses or music or uh, technology, whatever it is. He often needs a target, and boys tend to read more nonfiction because of that. That's really fascinating. I didn't realize that was actually a scientific thing. I know I've heard so many parents tell me they have boys who like to read their nonfiction books. I'm thinking particularly of books like by David Macaulay, the ones where how a castle was built or, you know, how the pyramids were built, things like that. Or, goodness, what's the Dinotopia? But things, oh, just nonfiction books. And I was curious to know, I, mean, I guess I've never taken it beyond that, just kind of wondered why boys are more attracted to nonfiction a lot of times than girls. But you're saying there's actually a reason for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the male and the female brain are so actually very different. And like for those people raising girls, the wonder of girls gives a lot of this. For those people raising boys, saving our sons will give a lot of this brain research. And then for the teaching part, boys and girls learn differently. Anyone who's teaching, boys and girls learn differently. And they all provide this brain science. And in short, I mean, this is condensing it very much. In short, the male and the female brain differentiate in utero. So they differentiate because of the X and the Y chromosome and the markers there. So they differentiate while mom is carrying the baby. So the baby comes out, not just with male and female body, but male and female brain. And there are, of course, some exceptions, but male and female brain generally intersect with male and female body. 99.7% of cases. And so, you know, you got a broad spectrum of that because you got 7 billion people on earth. So there's no one male and one female. There's a lot of variety. But in general, because the male brain leans toward a right side development on spatial mechanicals and visual graphics and doesn't do words on the right side, because of that, you have a larger pool of males 
who just don't produce as many words and who will intersect their word use with the stuff that they really are interested in. But girls are doing words on both sides of the brain. So they also have what we call visual graphic and spatial mechanicals on the right, but they're using up a lot more room on the right for words. So, and they do words on the left like guys do. So you've got two sides of the female brain doing words and connecting words to feelings, words to senses, words to mechanics, you know, words to all of their interest areas. But with guys, you only have being on the left or the front left. That's a big difference in word use. And that's one of the primary reasons that literacy rates around the world, females dominate, you know. And in our own test scores in the U.S., males are 10 points behind in reading and writing, what we call literacy, 10 points behind females. Females are about two or three points behind in math science. So that the huge gap really in education is this literacy gap and the nature part of it. You know, I'm a nature, nurture and culture person. I like to look at all three, but the nature part of it is in the brain. And so you have exceptions for males like me. I've written a lot of books. I've started reading at four. I, you know, I'm, I'm, my brain is really wired for, for word production, but I'm the one in five exception. You know, you're going to have three or four out of the five guys who are going to really, we need to target what they love to read in order to get them to read. That's so fascinating. So my husband is super intelligent, really smart guy. And occasionally, I'm a writer, right? So occasionally I'll hand him things and say, hey, could you read this over? And he'll look at me and say, one time recently, he looked at me and said, well, there's there's just so many words. <laughs> and I right. thought like, okay, of course there are lots of words, but that's it kind of made me laugh when you were, when you were talking just then, because I really saw my very bright, very intelligent husband and his own affinity for visual images over words. So you said something a second ago I want to go back to. You had talked, you said that boys will oftentimes prefer graphic novels and books with pictures. I know there's a lot of parents who worry about their children's affinity for graphic novels. Can we talk about that? Is that something we should be worried about? Is that something we should promote? What's your take on that? Yeah, no, I wouldn't worry about it. The key is to get guys to read. And remembering that the right side of the male brain does not do words, right? We're doing visual graphics and spatial mechanicals on the right. So the visual graphic part is why guys are so invested in pictures. And we need pictures. We need more graphics and pictures. And then the more male that brain is, right, you've got the 3.5 billion males in the world. Some are like me who are very verbal, let's say, but you remember you got a lot who I would say are more male-male. They're even more spatial mechanically, more visual graphic. And so if we're going to get them to read, they may, all the way into adolescence, want those graphics to go along with the words. And these will be the same guys who, when they were two and we were reading aloud to them, we would realize they weren't remembering the vocabulary unless we connected it to a picture. And once we connected the grasshopper to the picture and pointed to the picture, then the kid learned grasshopper, right? Because he's had the picture. So that's how that brain is set up. And, you know, billions, really billions of guys are set up that way. So I would not worry about graphic novels unless, you know, there's content in them that you don't like. Even people will say they're violent. Well, you know, it's pretty much fantasy violence, but then there are some that are just so misogynistic and mean. Yeah, I wouldn't want my son reading that. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, most graphic novels are stories that entrance the guy and that's good. He's getting words. I love that because I do think there's something of a stigma that a lot of families have against. We worry, I think, you know, I think it's our good intentions, but we worry that when we give our kids comic books, I know that my own son, he really will read voraciously when it comes to Calvin and Hobbes and Garfield and all of those comic books. And he just loves them. And really, I think those books were instrumental to helping him become a child who could decode to becoming a a kid who wants to pick up a book. So if we think through the books that we're reading, obviously considering the content that's within them, but 
considering that as a vehicle for helping them get into stories and get into books, then there's nothing to worry about there, right? Yeah, no, I I don't think so. And some of it's developmental. Like people will worry, okay, I have a 12-year-old, he's reading graphic novels. Does that mean he's not going to be able to read a lot of words as a lawyer or as a a doctor or, you know, what people are projecting maybe he'll be. And that brain is going to develop the whole reading, all of that. It's going to be moving two, maybe three years later than a girl's brain. So sometimes we think that brain is a girl's brain and we don't realize, wow, these brains are set up differently and that guys are later in a lot of stuff. So he may by 17 actually, you know, be using a lot of words and not reading as many graphic novels. Maybe none by the time he's in college or he's reading some graphic novels, but he's, of course, you know, become a good lawyer or a good doctor or whatever. So we want to remember that a lot of this is developmental. And if we keep them off of screens, the overuse of screens, and get them reading whatever they want to read as early as possible, their trajectory developmentally is probably going to be good. The thing that to worry about would not be the graphic novels, again, unless the, the character content is bad. The thing to worry about would be that they're, by, say, 12, they're wanting to spend four hours in front of a screen. Yep, yep. And and none of that's Kindle, you know. So then <laughs> that would be worrisome. Then if a kid is only reading the comics at 12, he's only reading the comics, not doing well in anything at school, and he's on screens, the problem isn't the books. The problem is the screens. So good. Okay, that's really, really helpful. So then I guess that leads me to a question. Do you see a problem with then age-based book lists where they say, you know, these are good books for a fourth grader? Because the way you're describing the brain of a boy or a brain of a girl in, let's say, fourth or fifth grade makes me wonder if, you know, we unnecessarily worry about our boys who may not be developmentally ready to tackle the same kind of books that our girls are at the same age. I think that as people look at all this developmentally, you know, until they go deeper into male-female brain, it'll be you know, it's often hard for people not to see reading through the lens of the more successful brain. So generally, that more successful brain is the one in five guys and, you know, the four out of five girls. Mm -hmm. So we see reading and the developmental markers for reading, and we unconsciously use those people, you know, most of whom are girls, and then some guys who are great readers, we use them. And But when we get deep into this stuff, when we really get into it, you know, when someone after someone reads Saving Our Sons or boys and girls are differently or something, they come out of it and then they then they, they start doing what I call citizen science, you know, where they start studying their own kids and from the perspective of this brain science, then they make different standards. So then they say, well, okay, wait a minute. I'm unconsciously thinking my 14-year-old boy, let's say, should be reading this way because my 14-year-old girl did. Mm -hmm. but now I understand that, you know, his brain developed for this maybe later. And this could switch. I mean, there are some girls who are not good readers and mm -hmm. some guys readers. So of course that can switch. But statistically, we're going to see this where until we get into it and do this science for ourselves, we're applying a standard that may not be appropriate. Yeah. So then this is the benefit of parents who look at the child in front of them and say, what do you need next? Instead of holding them up against some measuring, you know, measuring stick that sort of generalizes an age or makes us feel like our child should be able to read at this level or this kind of book, but instead just looking at our child and saying, what do you need next? What's the next stepping stone? Yeah, yeah, really individualize this to the child. You know, I have a book called Nurture the Nature, and that's absolutely my philosophy. There's nature, nurture, and culture. They all apply to child raising, and nature's a big part of it. And when we're trying to figure out how we ought to raise a kid, you know, we've got to nurture that child's nature. 
And so if that child, of course, is a really great reader by nature, then we're nurturing that for sure. If that child is developmentally in, in, you know, by nature is developmentally in place A, we need to nurture toward place A. And the culture may tell us something's wrong with him or her or whatever. The culture may say A, B, or C. But we have to nurture the nature of this child. And of course, if a parent feels like, well, the nature of this child is a brain disorder or some kind of reading disorder, okay, that's its own thing. Of course, you got to get help for that. Got to go to professionals for that. But if we're talking about, you know, the normally developing child without that issue, then our best bet, I think, is become a citizen science of this kid (laughs) and nurture this kid. Yeah. Okay. That's so great. You wrote a book called What Stories Does My Son Need? It's a guide to books and movies you've curated that specifically build character and boys with recommendations based on their age. I'd love to talk more about that book. And hey, listeners, by the way, we will have a whole slew of Dr. Gurian's books in the show notes of today's episode. So if you head to readaloudrevival.com and look for this episode, you'll see a list with easy-to-click links of Dr. Gurian's books, and this will be one of them. But let's talk a little bit more about what stories does my son need. Can you tell me how you chose those specific stories to include and the movies to include on that list? Yeah, well, you know what happened was the publisher of The Wonder of Boys, that he, he, they came to me and said, hey, we want, you know, we want you to do this. There's a lot of stuff out there about what girls should read. Let's do one, what boys should read. And so I was sort of, at first I was saying, hmm, well, you know, I'll just do this by instinct. I'll interview guys, you know, and, and et cetera. And I'm creating a list, right? And then, then uh, I have a friend named Terry Truman, and he's a young adult author. He won a Prince Honor Award for his book, Stuck in Neutral, which is from the point of view of a seriously disabled boy and became very popular and won awards and so on. And he's a pal of mine. Actually, we've known each other for about 40 years. And I said, so Terry, you know, so help me out here. You're a young adult author. You're better qualified than I am. So he and I got together and over a period of a number of months. We read a lot of books. And of course, both of us had you know, a lot of books in our brains anyway that we wanted to share and that we wanted boys to use. And then we specifically, the subtitle is, you know, books and movies that build character. So then we whittled it down to 100 books and 100 movies that some part of it builds good character. So it's not just entertainment. It's, it, you know, Huckleberry Finn is... Yeah. We're studying that. We're learn boys are learning things from that. They're learning things from now, since the book has been published, obviously there's other books now, like Hunger Games. You know, I think that that's built strong character. And so there's there's things that we could have added if we ever do a new one. But at that point, we had a hundred books and a hundred movies that we were convinced built character. And then Terry and I built these discussion starters so that they can be, you know, very practically used. The parents and kids can read the book and then they can talk about it. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer And here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? (laughs) Fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 
2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. Actually, that was my next question, so I'm glad you mentioned that because I'd love to talk with you about how parents can talk about stories with their kids. You focus so much on communicating with our kids and developing those really good, solid relationships with them. Uh, I'll, I'll say a little bit about what impedes us sometimes and then and on, you know, a lot of other great stuff. The impeding stuff, I think, is like with younger kids and boys specifically, what can impede us is that we are, we're reading a story to the boy you know, and we feel like, oh, he's not concentrating because he's, he's wiggling or fidgeting or wants to get up and move around. Yeah. That turns us off in a way, and it makes the reading into it, the storytelling and so on into it, a negative. But once we, you know, understand that guy's brain, we realize he has a very active cerebellum. There's all this great stuff folks can learn about. And so then we start saying, oh, wait a minute. If I, it's fun to cuddle with him. So he cuddles with me while we're reading for 10 minutes, let's say, but then he gets up and moves around. Well, that's actually good. That means his brain is saying, if I get up and move around, I'm actually going to be able to process what you're reading to me and the story you're telling me even better. It's going to go even deeper into my brain because the parts of the brain that are becoming active can help filter that information. But if we get mad at him about that and we try to force him to sit, that's a turnoff. So like, you know, a year from now, he ain't going to want to be reading stories with us because we have not understood the way his brain is acquiring those words and in understanding storytelling and being a part of that process. So for people with younger kids, that's just one to really watch out for. Kind of study that kid's nature, you know, see how he best acquires information and hears stories and is part of storytelling. And, you know, generally it's going to involve letting him move around if that's what he needs to do. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're saying that for some kids, moving around actually helps them listen and process better. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we work, not just, you know, the Gurian Institute, we have a, a group of folk and, and when we're training not just parents, but when we're training like preschools, people in, in kindergarten, or, you know, even in the early elementary, we'll be, we'll meet with these folks and the teachers will say, you know, I've got these, however many kids it is, it could be in a homeschool co-op, you know, I got these 10 kids, I'm reading aloud, you know, and I got all the girls or almost all the girls are just sitting there, rapt attention. And I've got a couple boys sitting there and then I've got these two or three boys, you know, they're wandering around. And so I try to corral them. And, and those folks don't realize that actually the way those brains are set up, Yes, he will hear more, acquire more, retain more if he's moving around. That is so, I love that you said that because that's been my hunch, but I love to hear it from you. <laughs> I love to hear it from with good, solid research because I've noticed that in my own, a 12-year-old son, actually. And I know that it's a concern a lot of parents have. My kid wants to move around. Is he really paying attention? I can't tell if he's listening or she's listening, depending on you know who's the one that's the most wiggly. So that's really, really helpful. Yeah, you know, one doesn't want to say, well, every time he's moving around, it's good. Again, it's always nurture the nature, study this child. Uh, every once in a while, a kid's, you know, being a behavior problem, etc. So that can absolutely happen. But yeah, most of the time, I find that it's that there's some very wiggly girls. That's how they're built. And that's great. I actually had one, one of my daughters that my kids are grown now, but one of them was much more wiggly than the other. So mm -hmm. certainly can happen with girls and, you know, mainly guys who uh, we just don't get their brains. We just don't understand it. And once we understand it, it's so liberating. We have fewer discipline problems. You know, we're not as mad at these boys as much. And they're just getting smarter because they're hearing more stories. Yeah, that's right. 
Okay, so I had interrupted you, but you said that was one thing that impedes us. What's something else? Well, on the plus side, I, I mean, in terms of good strategies and just, you know, that beautiful love that happens when parents and kids tell stories and read stories. One thing is I would love to see parents tell more stories, not even that they're being read, but parents tell more stories about themselves, their lives, grandparents, you know, tell stories, uncles, aunts, everybody be telling stories to kids because the oral and, you know, the written storytelling actually are united in the brain. I mean, the brain wants to hear stories as much as it wants to read stories. And so I, I just think storytelling from elders to youngers is absolutely great. I also think that at a certain age, that all the way along, both moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, you know, everyone ought to be doing as much as they can to read to kids. And then at a certain point, we want to remember that uh, guys, you know, it'll happen 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, guys are starting to, uh, you know, they're starting to need a lot more sort of male influence and a connection between males, fathers, you know, elder men and life. And now stories, we need to convince dads of this. We have to help dads understand this and get them to be telling more stories, get them to be suggesting certain books to their sons. Is this all good for daughters? Of course it is. I did it with my daughters. But my daughters are going to develop and they're going to generally like to read books a lot. But 12, 13, 14, we're going to start losing guys from the storytelling. So so that's why I would love to see more males involved, even if just once a month, you know, this was my favorite book at your age here and just hand it to him. Okay, so this is fascinating to me. So I think, so is this then connected with that sort of drive for a, ch a boy at around, you know, 12 to 14, answering that question of what is a man and how can I become one? So they need to see men then passing on that love of stories and desire to read in order to realize that that's a part of becoming what they want to be. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I see, you know, being a word guy, but guy who loves words and who writes stories, I see <laughs> Storytelling, I mean, I have to confess that. I see storytelling and I see reading of, you know, stories, both fiction and nonfiction. I see it as really good for brain development. And I also know, as you've just indicated, that I argue in my books that the question, as soon as puberty hits, and as the kid is aware that he is in puberty, that he's moving from boy to man, that that is the biggest question he's asking internally. You know, what is a man? How do I become a man? That's what he's asking. He may not voice it because it's unconscious for him, but that's what he's asking. So so w women, obviously, moms can do a lot to help him, but at a certain point, you know, dads and men are needed. So dads and men are going to instinctively get involved. Of course they will, but I'd love to see them get even more involved in the storytelling and the book reading part of it. Now, if by then the guy, uh, well, in part because the guy, the son, is going to unconsciously grab from that, oh, part of being a man is, you know, telling the story telling my stories, telling stories, which is going to be great in his relationship with his spouse later, mm -hmm. good communication. And then also that part of becoming a man is making sure to be very literate. And now at a certain point, by 14 or 15, maybe he's into two or three really big things, like maybe it's sports. So so now dad, you know, dad's not going to force him to read Jane Eyre. Even if dad liked Jane Eyre, this, this boy may not like Jane Eyre, but <laughs> still should be given him you know, still should be giving him, okay, you're into sports. Here's a biography of uh, Stephen Curry. You know, what do you think of reading this biography? And if you want, uh, you know, I'll read it too. Or I've read it already. Once you've read chapter one, I'd love to talk to you about it. So, and this can be done with a novel, certainly too. This is great for guys because, you know, fathers and sons, when they communicate differently than mothers and sons, you know, very often fathers and sons need something to be communicating about. So, yeah, yeah. 
I do a lot more of the reading aloud in our home than my husband does. But the books that he has read aloud to our kids, I find that he's a lot more driven to do it when they're just books that you know, interest him. So he'll read like Hatchet by Gary Paulson or My Side of the Mountain or Banner in the Sky, those kinds of books. And something about him reading to the kids. And I love it when I see online, I see people sharing pictures of dad reading to the kids. There's something there. I I can't really put my finger on it, except that I think you've, you've described here more the technical research side of why that is so moving to me as a mother when I see my dad, my husband, or when I see another man like nurturing that side of his parenting with his kids. It's really beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we ought to do it more and more and more. And uh, I think your insight is so correct that ultimately dads, like, so the dads are very busy. You're going to read what they want to hear themselves read, right? They're yeah. not, they're, you know, <laughs> again, when the kids are young, of course, it's, oh, whatever, you know, but then at a certain point, yeah, they're going to want to read what interests them. And that is absolutely great because the child will kind of un- unconsciously, if not consciously, will sense, oh, okay, so this is something that's interesting to dad. So that in itself is really neat. And also at a certain point, oh, so men kind of think that way. So what he talks to me about when reading Hatchet, that's kind of how guys think. And it's really good. It's good, obviously, for, for boys to understand how men think because they're becoming men and to try to acquire all of that wisdom they can and it's under, it's great for girls because they're going to be relating to men. So it's great for them to hear what it is that the father's interested in rather than someone saying, oh, no, you should only read to your child at this age, this book. That is not correct. Yeah. So you had mentioned that it's really important, especially when it comes to our sons, to help them find books that interest them, that maybe that have you know pictures or visual simulation in them. Is there a way that you would suggest us helping our boys? Here's the thing is, I know that... Uh, some of us have daughters too that are, are harder to sort of nurture that love of reading. And then we have the kids who just love reading no matter what. But for our listeners who have sons who are particularly reluctant readers or hesitant readers, or maybe they just aren't gravitating toward books in their own free time, we've already talked about screens. And of course, we know that if the screens are an option, actually, I bet you'll like this, uh, Dr. Gurian. I talked to Dr. Daniel Willingham. Uh, are you familiar with his work at all? He wrote a book called Raising Kids Who Read. Oh, yeah. Uh Okay, yeah. And he had talked about how books are like watermelon, you know, delicious and sweet. And his kids love watermelon and they're quite happy to eat watermelon. But if he was to say, you can have this piece of water, slice of watermelon or this ice cream cone or this candy bar, they would probably reach for the ice cream cone or the candy bar. And he had said, if we always have screens on the table as an option, our kids are going to choose the screens. So there have to be certain times of day where screens are not an option. And instead, that gives that frees our kids up to choose to eat the watermelon or to read the books. <laughs> so if we've already kind of removed the screens as a perpetual option in our home, do you have any other tactics for helping our kids fall in love with reading, particularly our boys who may be resistant to that? The two things, the other thing that might get in their way is that they're very physical, that they're very, you know, they really don't want to sit. So a strategy I like for that is, um, let's say they're very sports-oriented. Find, maybe it's mom, dad, whoever it is who's organizing this, find the thing that they're most interested in or the two or three things they're most interested in and, you know, just say to them, okay, so, you know, we're, we're going to have an hour of reading time. That's part of our family. That's what we're going to do. So go ahead and pick a book or something, you know, even a, a thick magazine, something that involves this field. So I have to make something up. So I'll say, let's say they're into football since we're in football season you know, then here, go find. And if he said, oh, I can't find it, you know, or if he, if he said, then you're already prepared, you know. 
you're, oh, well, actually, I've got one right here. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and, and it's a, it's the uh, biography of the football player, uh, Larry Fitzgerald. Okay. 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 Or since we're in the Northwest, you know, it would be um, one of our Seahawks players. Yeah. Uh, Wilson. <laughs> so, so, oh, I've got it right here. And so then there it is. And now, now if this son is saying, oh, and by the way, I'm bracketing out that he has a reading disorder. If he has a reading disorder or a learning disorder, then, then we got to remember that the best advice will come from the person working with us, help him with that disorder. It won't come from me or you, right? It's, but that, that's got to be about connecting him with someone who will help him with that disorder. But if he, if he doesn't have a learning disorder or reading disorder, then, you know, his resistance, we may have to break down over a month or two and just keep pummeling him with this. Okay, this is our hour, our half hour of reading time got you a biography on what you enjoy. This is what you got to do. It's part of our family. And then, you know, a few weeks later or a month later, we will probably start seeing change because he'll, he'll be like, oh, well, pretty interesting, you know? And then I get to talk to my dad or my friends or my mom about this. That's uh, pretty fun. I got something to talk about that I enjoy. And then it, it gets integrated in. But it could take every few weeks or a month or two. So one of the strategies I've used in my own home to spur my kids on to read when they maybe haven't been quite as interested in reading on their own is I'll have, make them a reading shelf. And this will be part of our homeschool, although if you don't homeschool, you could certainly do this as well. What I would do is I would put six to eight books on a shelf that I'm pretty sure my, that child would be interested in. And I'll tell my child, you have to read these by the end of the year or maybe every day during our quiet reading time, have our you're just going to read from one of these books. And then let them choose whatever book they want from that shelf. So it's sort of like a, a smaller selection of options, but I've actually curated them according to my right. kids' interests to make it very likely that they'll be good, like delightful reading experiences. So I could see this working really well with what you're saying. If you have a sports-oriented son, filling a shelf with five or seven books that are sports-related biographies or fiction that's based on sports and letting your child choose from there. Then they kind of get the option of not being assigned a particular book by mom, but getting to, you know, the freedom of being able to read from there. But you've actually taken a little time to make sure that those are probably going to be enjoyable ex reading experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely a great fit. And choice, as, as we all know, giving choices is great when we can do it. We're almost out of time, but I don't want to go without asking you about your newest book. Can you tell us a little bit about Saving Our Sons? Yeah, so Saving Our Sons is came out, you know, right now in 2017. And part of why I, there are two big reasons I wanted to write it. One was that I, you know, I had not written a book on raising boys in about 10 years. And so the research has gotten, you know, even more robust. I mean, there's just so much incredible stuff that we learn even 10 years later about male brain, about brains, about male brain, neuroscience, and then the practical strategies. Because not just me, but our Gurian Institute team, we have 150 trainers. And so we're always, you know, honing these strategies that we're teaching people. So that was, you know, one reason was catch it all up, get all the research and all this new stuff in there so that people could have it now in a way that's fresh and real for them in 2017. And, and that includes dealing with the technology stuff, because even in 10 years, technology has changed a lot and become actually not only more helpful to boys and girls, but it's become more dangerous. So I wanted to give all the new newest research, you know, 2017 research on technology use. Then the second reason I wrote it was was because I, in 30 years of advocating for uh, both boys and girls, right? I've written books on both, but particularly now for boys, 30 years of advocating for boys in communities, I've 
discovered, as people have, I think, sensed unconsciously, that it's very difficult to advocate for boys, that we've got some politics in the way, and we're, we're seeing boys fail constantly, you know, and we're not doing, the government is not helping us. I've spoken, you know, for Congress and given information to the White House for the United Nations, and, you know, everyone's trying their best, but the model they work out of is about a 50-year-old model. And it does not really understand the boys of today and, uh, you know, the amount of depression and anxiety and, and violence, you know, and just listlessness, aimlessness, loneliness, guys who are not being able to get jobs at 25, 30, 35. So I have, you know, books, mainly a parenting book, obviously, and I think very helpful to parents. But I do have a chapter in there where I kind of try to inspire everyone now in 2017 to battle in their neighborhoods for boys. And I give them the practical strategies that we found working in neighborhoods, in the grassroots, and then say, okay, try this, because this we have found works in the grassroots. It may not work at the highest levels of government. They're still stuck. But <laughs> grassroots can change. And here's how we have seen the grassroots change. So that's the second reason I wrote Saving Our Sons. That's fantastic, especially because as listeners to this podcast, we're all very, very interested, of course, in our own boys. And they're, that's as grassroots as it gets, right? Is right in our own homes and seeing what we can do for our own kids. I appreciate this so much. We're going to have links to so many of your books in the show notes. Listeners, make sure you head to readaloudrevival.com and look for this episode so you don't miss them. And Dr. Gurian, I'm going to have to have you back. I think there's more questions I want to ask you, but we'll save them for another time. I so appreciate the time you've shared with me today. Thank you so much for carving out some time for us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. And I'll see you. I'll see you soon. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. What's your name? Evie. How old are you? Two. Where are you from? From Arkansas. From Arkansas? What's your favorite book? Um, Peter Rabbit. What do you like about it? And Mommy Reed. And what's your favorite part? He gets radish. When he eats the radishes. Hi, my name is Mateo. I am nine years old and I live in San Antonio, Texas. And my favorite book is Will Wilder by Raymond Arroyo. My favorite part is where when they are in the second chamber, where Simon puts his hands on his face and leaves hand marks because he gets scorched. Hi, my name is Lucas. And my favorite book is Pinocchio by Carlo Colosi. My favorite part is at the end where Pinocchio finds his father. The next day he becomes a real boy. I am from San Antonio, Texas. Hi, my name is Sophia. I live in San Antonio, Texas, and I am 13 years old. My favorite book is Waking Rose by Regina Doman. My favorite part is when Rose and her college puts on the Shakespeare play of King Lear. Hello, my name is Claire, and I'm from Texas, Fort Worth. And my favorite book is By the Great Horn Spoon, because the captain on the ship says, Hold your hats, ladies and gentlemen. I like that part because it's really funny. Hello, my name is Bridget, and I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. My favorite book is The Pinterest, and my favorite character is Batty because she understands dog language. Hello, my name is Aston. I'm from Indiana, five years old, and my favorite books are Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
and I like about it because I like when the acid comes back and breathes on the, the statue and, and it becomes like the animal thingy again instead of the statue anymore because the white witch turned in a statue from, from Chronicles of Narnia. What's your name? Eden. How old are you? Three. And where are you from? Indiana. Indiana. And what is your favorite book? Little Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood from Grimm's Fairy Tales? Yeah. Why? Because I like it and I love you. My name is Jonah. I'm six years old. I live in Colorado. And my favorite book is Magic Treehouse Night of the Ninjas. It's good because it's about ninjas. Hi, my name is Ella and I'm six years old. My favorite books are the Magic Treehouse series. It's about these two kids named Jack and Annie. They all go on wonderful adventures. Thank you, kids. I love those messages. I always love to hear the books that you are enjoying. Well, that's a wrap on episode 82. Remember, if you'd like the transcript or to get your hands on some of Dr. Gurian's books, you can do that by going to the show notes at readaloudrevival.com slash 82. This is the end of season 11 of the Read Aloud Revival. We have an awesome season 12 planned for you. It's getting started in January. So We're taking a little break for the Christmas holidays, and then we'll be back in the new year with some amazing episodes. We've been planning these for a while, and I'm excited about them, so you don't want to miss out on those. Don't forget, if you haven't grabbed our gift guide, we have 20 great gift ideas for young readers. You can grab those at readaloudrevival.com slash 80, because we did a mini episode on those, episode 80. So you can just, after you're done listening to this episode, scroll up in your podcast app and listen to that episode if you missed it. Or go to readaloudrevival.com slash 80 and go right to the gift guide itself. 2018 is going to be an awesome year here at Read Aloud Revival. We want to make 2018 the best year you've ever had when it comes to making meaningful and lasting connections with your kids. And we are all in on helping you do that. So thank you so much for listening. Remember to sign up for the email list if you haven't done it. That's at readaloudrevival.com. Just pop your email in on the page there because that's where you get the first word when a new podcast drops, when we have a great new book list or something else that will help you make those wonderful connections with your kids through books. We'll be back soon. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas holiday and I hope your holidays are a time where you can make some meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. See you soon. Thank you.